This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Good evening. I'm uh, Kiyuk Shin. I'm director of Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center here at Stanford. On behalf of the center, I'd like to welcome all of you to this exciting event. It's so good to see so many people. Uh, as you know, uh, this uh, annual lecture uh, is being held uh, in honor of the late uh, Michael Oxenberg, uh, who was a great thinker and a you know, great scholar, also a great teacher, and very important policymaker uh, for the United States. So in this lecture, we wanted to recognize uh, distinguished uh, individuals uh, who have uh, helped us to understand uh, the relationship between the uh, United States and Asia, especially uh, China. So this evening, uh, we have a great speaker uh, who will speak on uh, you know, China. But I'm going to uh, introduce my colleague, uh, Andy Walder, who will be introducing uh, our speaker. But before that, uh, let me recognize the presence of the family members of Mike, uh, Louis, and then David. It's great, great to see you uh, this evening. And also, I'd like to thank uh, Walter Schoenstein for his continuing support uh, for our center and program. So now let me turn to uh, Andy Waldo, who's my colleague uh, in sociology as well as at the center. Thank you, Giwak. Uh, it's a great uh, pleasure, both uh, professional and personal, to uh, introduce David M. Lampton, Mike Lampton. Um, who's arguably the most distinguished American observer of China and U.S.-China relations today. Uh, Mike is the uh, George and Sadie Hyman Professor uh, and Director of China Studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And before that, he spent a decade as Director or President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations uh, in New York. Uh, he's the author of uh, numerous books, the most recent uh, one is The Three Faces of Chinese Power, Might, Money, and Minds. And prior to that, a few years earlier, uh, he published a book called Same Bed, Different Dreams, Managing U.S.-China Relations from 1989 to 2000. Uh, Mike received both his B.A. and his Ph.D. from Stanford University. And if memory serves me correctly, Mike grew up in Silicon Valley. Cupertino? I had an uncle there. But uh, I grew up in Los Altos and Palo Los Altos, even closer. Los Altos, yeah. back, back when the Silicon Valley was known for its fruit orchards <laughs> rather than its high-tech products. Uh, so, uh, Mike, welcome. Uh, and uh, the speech uh, he's giving tonight will be U.S.-China relations. Where do we stand? Where are we going? Welcome, Mike. Well, hopefully we won't get uh, too much feedback. Uh, the place I actually enjoyed living the most was across the street in the firehouse. When I, when I went through uh, Stanford, uh, lived in the firehouse. It was really a great group of young people. And uh, you had to work 24 hours on, 24 hours off. So I had to study at least every other 24 hours. I had no choice. But uh, uh, in any case, it's very good to be here. And thank you, G. Walk, 
for the uh, kind introduction, and Andy, and, and good to see Gene White as well, my old friends. Um, my wife Susan, who's here, and I are very honored to take part in this ongoing celebration, really, of the life of Mike Oxenberg. Um, he was, as I think everybody in this room probably knows, not only a preeminent scholar, but that sort of rare, almost effortless combination of thought and action, and it inspired, I think he sort of took it as his task to sort of educate one student, and, and among his students in some sense were some presidents of the United States, but educate them sort of one at a time, and uh, certainly I was lucky to be among the number of people that was able to learn from him. Uh, it's wonderful to see Lois and son David, uh, we've known them for uh, at least four decades, uh, and uh, I just couldn't be more pleased as I know Susan, my wife, is to be here with you all. I also want to acknowledge uh, Walter Shorenstein and, and Mike Armacost, both for both their service to Stanford, and I say this as a, an alum of Stanford, uh, and their service to the country. Uh, and as I was thinking about this talk and thinking about service, I wanted to call to everybody's attention in case it escaped you that this is the 30th anniversary of the announcement, uh, year of the announcement of the normalization of Americans, America's relations with China. And uh, I think there is probably no uh, one that played a bigger role in, in working that out uh, than Mike Oxenberg when he was in the National Security Council, working with President Carter, uh, National Security Advisor Brzezinski, uh, Leonard Woodcock uh, in China. Uh, he pushed tirelessly, I would say, and very skillfully within the government to bring that result. And I think uh, there are many foreign policy moves we might have questions about, but I think it's almost undeniable the kind of positive benefit that's come to both our countries by virtue of, of Mike's uh, work. So I just wanted to also say that there are some Chinese uh, citizens in the audience and I think Mike, were he here, would do uh, what I propose to do, and that is just express our uh, sorrow at what's happening and happened uh, in China, but simultaneously express admiration for the way in which the Chinese people are dealing with this. Uh, and uh, I think we all hope the best uh, as China pulls out of this latest, latest challenge. I just wanted to share a, a little vignette uh, and, and then get on with the, the topic uh, per se, a little vignette with Lois and, and David and all of you that may give you some insight into the kind of uh, person that, that Mike was. I was at a dinner the other, uh, about a month and a half ago. It was after a Brookings uh, conference. Uh, we'd had a long day at the Brookings Institution and about 25 of us went to dinner in a restaurant in Washington called the Caucus Room. Uh, and uh, after dessert was served, about about half of us, as it turned out, had been uh, close to Mike in one way or another, and another half were very young people in the room that knew Mike by reputation but had never had the opportunity to meet him. So when dessert was <coughs> served, somebody raised uh, the, uh, the, the topic of Mike and uh, his various enterprises and what it was like to travel with him in China, but we came to Zoping County where, uh, in Shandong province where uh, Gene and Andy, among many others, have done research, was sort of turned into a county laboratory for social scientists, to be the way I'd put it. This was Mike's brainchild. 
And that conversation just sort of rolled on with various things and ideas uh, that he had contributed to our field. And I looked at those, that other half of the room that were the young people that didn't know Mike. And they were just sort of agape at the kind of feeling that was in the room about the, what a special person this must have been. To, we were the old timers in the room recounting uh, this. And uh, I, at the end, we came to the end of that conversation, and everybody looked at everybody and said, there, there's really nothing more to be said, and the evening ended. We all left, I think, a little bit ennobled that uh, we'd had that conversation, shared that, uh, that experience. I think if we look intellectually at what Mike uh, believed, I think there were a number of key dimensions to what, what he believed. I think he believed that if we're lucky, relations with China will be shaped by statesmen with a strategic long-term view of our relations. Uh, and always mindful at the same time, the tug against strategy is going to be domestic politics, uh, the necessary compromises, the need to mobilize people so that statesmanship and strategy were always in a kind of tension with domestic politics. And if we were lucky, we would have somebody at the top and near the top that had a strategic uh, point of view. I think his real nightmare for US-China relations was where domestic politics, either in China or in the United States, would completely submerge the strategic uh, perspective. And Mike admired people with a strategic perspective. Nixon, and they, it was a nonpartisan a kind of admiration. Nixon and Kissinger, Carter, Scowcroft, George Schultz, he had great admiration for, and Zbig Brzezinski, many of them, or several of them, have spoken here in previous uh, years. Mike, like James Schlesinger, I think had a, a fear of what you might call the exile community that would mobilize the American polity in a way that wouldn't be very constructive to U.S.-China relations. And like uh, Hedrick Smith, he he feared the commercial media, the, the sort of merger of the media and electoral politics, and the need uh, for a commercialized media uh, to appeal popularly, and the desire of politicians to reach large numbers of people. I think he very much feared that combination. Uh, and he also, though, admired some people in the US government, particularly in Congress, he was ambivalent, I think in many respects, but there were people in the US Congress that I think he had great regard for, people like Mike Mansfield, Scoop Jackson. In fact, we were just over at Lois's, uh, my wife and I today over at Lois's, and she pulled out a picture of Scoop Jackson being embraced by Deng Xiaoping. Uh, he, he also admired uh, Barbara Conable, who he knew well in the latter part of his life. So long and the short of it is that I think we're dealing with a very great person in the sense of being very understanding of what the necessities of politics are and yet never losing sight of what the long-term problems were and the need for people that could rise above uh, the momentary uh, frictions. All this brings me to uh, the core of what I'd like to talk a bit, little bit about. Uh, and what I've been thinking about, and as I was thinking about this lecture, I only wish that Mike could be here because he'd have more ideas than anybody else uh, in the room. 
And what I've been working on for the last four years is trying to think about Chinese power. What is power? Uh, what are the characteristics of Chinese power in this moment and for the likely future? And what does that mean for the rest of the world? Now, this whole question of what is power, long and the short of it is there are many definitions. Chinese have been thinking about it since 500 BC at least. Uh, certainly, uh, the classic political theorists Plato and Aristotle thought about it. But the definition that I actually came to like the best about power is that power is the ability to define and achieve one's purposes and one's goals. Uh, and I find that to, if we look at trying to understand what are the purposes and goals guiding Chinese entry into the world and its own domestic development, and ask ourselves how efficiently is China moving in this direction, in its chosen directions, with what efficiency, and what are the effects as China becomes more and more uh, powerful. Now, I thought I'd share with you, I won't go through what all of the uh, thinking that I've, I've done on this, but maybe a few central conclusions that I hope will spark some discussion. And I think some of the central ideas that I came up with revolve around what are China's goals. Most of my career was spent looking at bureaucratic politics. And I, that work would lead one to the conclusion that it's very difficult for large organizations to have goals, define them, and then pursue them, and then implement them, and then keep with it for any sustained period of time. So when I thought about China and goals and capacity to sustain, my bias would have been it would be very difficult for China to define goals and pursue them in a sustained way. But I think I came out, this is the nice thing about research, occasionally you come up with an idea that you didn't start with, or a conclusion that was actually contrary to where you started. I think in a very meaningful way, we can talk about what are China's goals. And in a very important way, I think China's leaders and its people share an objective. And that objective I would describe as China aims to be a comprehensive global power. Now that might sound like a cliche until you try to get to the next level of detail. I think the Chinese think in terms of role models, and I think they've done a lot of study, a lot of interesting studies they've done on why did the Soviet Union fail. And I think the Chinese have come to a rather uniform conclusion that the Soviet Union failed essentially because it overemphasized one form of power. The subtitle that Andy uh, mentioned in my book was Might, Money, and Mind sort of borrowed from Etzioni, uh, the three kinds of power, coercive, remunerative, and, and normative power. Uh, in any case, I think the Chinese have looked at the fall of the Soviet Union, and indeed, many other empires throughout history, they've systematically been looking at, why did they fail? The Soviet Union, in their view, failed because they were muscle-bound, overemphasized coercive power, undermined the capacity of their economy to create economic power and therefore legitimacy among the citizens. And by getting too much coercive power, they build an international coalition, the free world, uh, against them. And I think the Chinese explicitly reject the notion of an overemphasis on coercive power. Now we're going to have a debate about what is overemphasis and what balance, but I think the Chinese are are striving for a balanced portfolio of coercive economic 
uh, and intellectual symbolic uh, power. Another model the Chinese might have taken would be the Japanese, and I think the Chinese would say, we don't want to be Japan in, in many respects, but we particularly don't want to be just an economic power without the coercive capability on the one hand or the what you might call symbolic soft power uh, on the other hand. Uh, so then you're left with, well, what, what is the vision in effect? And I came to the conclusion I'm not one of these people that thinks everybody wants to be like the United States. That's not my uh, starting point. But if you think about the United States and what has made us special in the world uh, for at least the post-World War II period, was that we had a balanced portfolio of coercive, economic, and symbolic, uh, you know, the shining city on the hill kind of power. Uh, and I think, in effect, that's the kind of power that China uh, aspires to. It's a long way off. There are many uh, uh, uncertainties ahead. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that that is the vision. You can like it or you cannot like it. You can fear it. You can embrace it. You can do any number of things. But I think that vision really uh, unifies the Chinese people with their leaders. There are many things that drive the Chinese people from their leaders from time to time, or indeed much of the time. But I think on this vision of what China should be, it may be more or less explicit in the minds of some, but I think that is the goal towards which the Chinese are, are working. Then the question really becomes, if, if that, broadly speaking, is the objective, then how does one begin to build a balanced portfolio of coercive economic and intellectual power on a global basis? And this gets to my sort of second broad conclusion, and I'm not given to sycophancy and uh, sort of adulation of leaders. But I was at a meeting the other day, uh, Henry Kissinger happened to be there, and we got off talking about Deng Xiaoping and, and so forth. He leaned over to his, the person sitting next to him and says, you know, the more you learn about Deng Xiaoping, and the more you understand him, the more admiration you have to have. And I think Deng's basic approach to how you are going to build comprehensive global power uh, was really both simple, profound, and uh, really, uh, in, in the end, its implications were uh, uh, enormous. I think he, there were three key concepts in his how are we going to do this? One was globalization. I, in doing my book, I interviewed uh, Robert McNamara, and he was president of the World Bank in the early 1980s. He, he talked to Deng, Deng Xiaoping, uh, it was either 80, 81, uh, as I recall. And uh, Deng Xiaoping came to right to the point. He had a spittoon next to him, spit in it, and said, basically, we've wasted 30 years. Uh, we have more, no more time to waste. We have to develop economically. Uh, we, China, need your help, meaning the multilateral institutions, the Bretton Woods uh, institutions. Uh, and we hope you'll give us that help. We are going to move into the world economy. We want your help. I, I've had the opportunity from time to time to talk to Deng Xiaoping's youngest daughter, Deng Rung. And I remember one lunch with her asking her, why did your father always favor rapid growth whenever he had a choice? It was almost, he was always treading on the edge of, of overheating. And she said, well, it's really very simple. My father looked at the, the Chinese societies, countries, Taiwan, Chinese communities, whether they're in Canada or New York, uh, Singapore, 
And you say, why is it that Chinese are rich everywhere but China? Not, not a bad question in 1978. Uh, and I, he had two answers to that. One is they're involved in the global economy. And he very starkly, 78, 79, went to special economic zones, began to open up China to the world, something I think Mao never would have uh, done. Secondly, I think, so globalization's one part of this, urbanization. When Deng Xiaoping took over in 1977-78, China was probably, what, 85, 90% peasant, depending on how you define urban and rural, but overwhelmingly peasant. Uh, and today, China is about, well, various definitions of where rural ends and urban starts, but say 60% or 55 I think most of us will probably live to see the point where China is a predominantly urban society. Uh, in any case, I think Deng believed that a peasant society could never be a global power, at least in the modern world. And he began a process of urbanization that in the space of 30 years has urbanized roughly 300 million people population the size of the United States. Now, of course, as Walter and I were just talking before, they still have another three or four hundred million to go. Uh, and I'll come back to that theme having gone quite a distance, but yet quite a distance uh, to go. But Dung really understood, it seems to me, globalization could become a driver, urbanization could become a driver, and the fourth, third thing, marketization. Uh, Chinese, uh, he had two prior major experiences trying to introduce market principles into China and had run afoul of Mao, but by 1977-78, with Mao out of the way, dead, uh, he began to, for the third time, introduce market principles. So essentially, I think the core of what Deng was doing to drive this, this, this juggernaut towards a, a more powerful status in the world was to put it into the world economy, as we've now seen it succeed, urbanize it, uh, which is about halfway done, uh, maybe a little less than that, and begin to marketize the economy and, and take advantage of material uh, incentives. Simple ideas, but it had enormous consequences and certainly for social stability and turmoil, which brings us to the third part of how we're going to do this. Then that issue became what kind of foreign policy are we going to do? If we're going to have a, a society in tumult because we're moving from the plan to the market, from peasants to uh, urban uh, areas, uh, globalizing, this is going to imply a lot of social change. What kind of foreign policy do we need? And I think he, his basic answer was we have to turn to the world to give us several things. Inputs of capital, technology, management, knowledge. We need markets, but perhaps most of all, we need the world to give us no additional problems, no additional security problems. And essentially, it was encapsulated in the way each, if you look at how Mao defined the world, it was, this is an era of war and revolution, and he organized society substantially based on that characterization. For Deng, he redefined it and said, it's an era of peace and development, and essentially Chinese policy it isn't always perfectly executed. They don't always accomplish what they're trying. But essentially is to try to use diplomacy to minimize threats so they don't have to overinvest in the way that the Soviet Union did. 
foreign policy was to become the cocoon protecting this tumultuous change of marketization and urbanization and globalization that was going on in China. Then the issue is, well, if that's what they set out to do uh, 30 years ago, uh, how would we assess it? And, and how would the Chinese assess it? And I think the predominant Chinese assessment is in the following way. We've come a very long way in a very short time. We've surprised ourselves. We've surprised the world. But we have a very long way to go again. And the sort of graphic representation of this, if I was slow, showing slides, I'd, I'd show two slides. And the first one would be uh, the data coming out of a, an economic historian in Europe. His name's Angus Madison. Uh, and he basically traces the share that different countries have had of global GNP since the time of the birth of Jesus Christ to the, essentially the present. And it's a fascinating, when you put it in a chart form, he just has it in numbers tabulated, but if you put it in chart form, what you find is that from the year the birth of Jesus Christ to 1840, China occupied between about 23 and 33% of global GNP. Now part of that reflected just the per capitas in China in the circumstance of a poor world. But what's notable is that in, in 1840, as we would mostly teach in a modern history course on China, with the industrialization of Europe, the beginning of the rise of Japan shortly thereafter, America's uh, rise into the global scene, China fell uh, very precipitously to about 3 to 5%, depending on the year, years of, of global GNP. So from 23 to 33% down to 3 to 5%. And that persisted. It didn't end in 1949. That circumstance went into the 1970s. Uh, and then you see just about in 1978, the, the percentage begins to go up. And in 2000, China was back to 11% of global GDP. And according to the IMF, in 2006-07, uh, China's back to about 16% of global GNP. And I think this is a, a, a representation of, of how I think the Chinese think about their circumstance. They don't see themselves as a disequilibrating force in the world. They see themselves as restoring a pre-existent circumstance, restoring the normal circumstance. But more to the point, they see themselves as only halfway there. So the Americans are focused on where China's come from and how fast it's going. We draw that line out. Uh, and of course, uh, we're all familiar with people who begin to worry about what the implications of those lines continuing to move out and China gain share of global GNP. This brings me to my second. And I think this is sort of the psychological crux of, in a way, sort of the distillation of what's the problem in our, uh, in our relationship. Uh, I would call your attention to a recent poll. It was in February of 2008 by the Gallup organization. And uh, they asked the same question periodically over time. This, the question that I'll tell you, they asked in 2000, and then they asked it again in February of 2008. And the question was, uh, in your view, and this was a survey of Americans, what is the leading economy in the world? 
not what will be, what might be, but what is the leading economy in the world today. And in 2000, uh, May of 2000, 10% of Americans thought China was that, uh, but 65% of Americans thought the U.S. was that. You fast forward to February 2008, and now 40% of Americans, ill-informed as they may be, 40% uh, of them think China is the, leading, is the leading economic power in the world, and only 33% of Americans felt that way. Now, you can ascribe that to our particular current uh, malaise or depression or whatever you want to call our current psychological circumstance. But I think the Chinese look at this, and, 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 and if you sort of juxtapose these views, the Chinese have moved halfway to what they would sort of see as the sort of equilibrium normal state of affairs, and I think they all are worried that the second 16% share of global GNP is going to be a hot, lot harder to get than the first 16%. And as they are halfway on a long and arduous journey, the Americans now see them already, uh, or at least a sizable constituency of Americans, as a very successful, potent force, and they pay particular attention to the, uh, the, the kinds of policies that could be implemented either in the security or in the economic realm in the United States that would be adverse uh, to their interests. Uh, so I think the Chinese are very worried about the sort of, uh, the, 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 their notion that it's the, the hill's getting steeper and that the Americans are getting more worried, uh, how are we going uh, to deal with this? Um, a final conclusion, or just uh, sort of spark a discussion, is I remember in one of the great things in, in interviewing for, the, for me for this book was I got to go around China's periphery and visit countries that I had either not been to ever or for a long time. And I remember uh, the, uh, it turned out that the, the uh, Secretary of Defense in Australia was a man named Rick Smith. It turned out he had been ambassador to China, so he actually wanted to talk a whole lot longer than than he initially agreed to do. But I remember what he said about how the Chinese think about security. So, you know, the Chinese are very conservative. Their security map is not red arrows pointing into China from the international system. The security map in the minds of the Chinese is red arrows inside the system pointing at Beijing. Instability. And they, in fact, are predisposed to pay much more attention internally. And if you think about U.S. interests, the fact that China has this tumultuous change that it's unleashed, this urbanization, this going to the market, all of this migration, it'd be hard to imagine anything more in American interests than China staying focused on its internal problems. We, it seems to me, as a matter of strategy, ought to be doing everything we can do to encourage the Chinese to successfully deal with these uh, internal uh, problems. Now, the long and the short of it is that I come away very optimistic that China is going to continue, broadly speaking, to be on an upward trajectory. But there is a chapter in the book, and it's called The Precarious Balance, because I don't take stability in China for granted. In fact, when you look by at the problems that China's leaders are facing one by one, 
I think, and I think Mike used to say this, I wonder how Chinese leaders have the courage to get up in the morning. And I, I, lest I sound unrealistic, I just want to tick off some of the, the problems uh, that China, and then draw a few policy implications, and then we'll have uh, some discussion. First of all, China's going to be a very rapidly aging society. We, we've been in a kind of demographic sweet spot uh, as far as China's concerned on its population. In 2000, about six plus workers were available for every uh, elderly person. But by 2040, that six to roughly one uh, ratio is going to go to something approximating two uh, to one. So China's going to be a rapidly aging society, which is going to have implications for health care costs, uh, for social security costs, uh, social safety net, broadly uh, speaking. It's not self-evident that China can get to an economic level capable of sustaining such an elderly population that fast. I think that's going to be one of the major problems. And of course, we also have the sex imbalance and several other things in the demographic uh, area to worry about. A, a second broad challenge, and one of my favorite economists in China is a, a, a man named Huan Gong. I, I think several in these, this room may uh, know him. But anyway, he talks about the fourth, four Chinas. There isn't just one China, there are four Chinas. The, uh, the, the China that we all see, uh, the Pudong, the Shanghai, the, uh, the Dalian, the coastal corridor, maybe 10, give or take, percent of the Chinese population. But 50% of China is probably in something arguably close to the condition of the poorer con poorest countries of the world. And politically, you have a huge problem of how you meet the rising expectations of a growing middle class. Uh, and we can argue about what the middle class is exactly, but it's, get, it's growing rapidly, and everybody agrees about that. At the same time, you still have a very large fraction of your population at really quite abysmal levels in terms of per capita income. As I said, too, we still have this urbanization agenda. It's impressive that China, with as little violence as it's had, absorbed 300 million people, give or take, into the cities. But it still has three or 400 million uh, to go. And then there's the environment. In 1982, I lived in, in China, in Wuhan, studied the management and planning of the Yangtze River. And I, I came back from that trip and I remember I wrote a little uh, article for the Joint Economic Committee of the Congress. And I went back and looked at that in preparing for the speech. And the first line uh, was to the effect that the water problems that China has, particularly in the North China Plain, are going to be bigger problems for Chinese growth, perhaps, than the energy problems that people have been talking about uh, for a long time. If you look at the North China Plain now, water is becoming a major constraint. Not only the, uh, you know, the cleanliness and potability of water, but the mere availability. Industrial production is not running at anywhere near its potential in many places of the North China Plain simply out of consideration of water. And it would be my view that even huge projects like the movement of water along two courses from the Yangtze River to the North China Plain really aren't going to materially change that uh, situation, at least not for very long. Also, we, we think about China, we need to think about the political system. And when all is said and done, China doesn't yet have an institutionalized, constitutionally based rule 
of law uh, uh, institutionalized succession system. And it seems to me if you can't be con uh, 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 sort of confident about the succession system, uh, you can't be fully confident of political stability and everything that um, uh, comes from that. And finally, one of the interesting things is I, I talk to people at farther removed, particularly in Africa, in Latin America, is China's going to find what big powers have always found, and that is you become stronger, you exercise uh, influence at greater distance from your borders and so forth. People don't always appreciate uh, your interaction with them. And already we've had anti-Chinese riots uh, in Zambia. I remember uh, Susie and I were in Portugal at a meeting. Uh, the, uh, an African from Mozambique berated the Chinese ambassador for their exploitative uh, lumbering and environmental policies and uh, non-sustainability and so forth. So as China's getting stronger, you can already see the international system uh, pushing back. Well, what are some of the implications of all of this for uh, U.S.-China relations? And I'll just tick off a couple of uh, examples and then we'll uh, open it up for a Q&A. I think one of the conclusions that I've come to, and this is certainly a, a subject of debate and discussion, is that China, I think, is emphasizing economic and intellectual power and the, the biggest strategic mistake the United States could make, or at least one of the biggest in this regard, is to overemphasize sort of the might part of the Chinese equation and underestimate the money and the mind. I think the real, if there is a challenge, uh, one challenge could be China not succeeding and, and that it's set up, but the success challenge that China is going to represent, I believe, is in the economic domain and in the, what you might call broadly, the domain of minds, uh, uh, particularly intellectual uh, capacity. And living in Washington, at least as I do, I think in a sense Washington is hardwired to pay more attention to security and coercive threats than it is to economic and intellectual competition. And maybe the biggest challenge that I think both the rise of India and China present is for us to not ignore the, co the dom domain of our coercive capability and not to ignore the challenges China might present. But I think by far the likelihood is that the challenge that we really need to, to work for is in the economic and the intellectual uh, domain. And I, haven't, uh, I just don't have confidence that our political system will necessarily uh, make that choice. That gets to sort of a second conclusion, and that is that reform in China, where, where Americans are uh, quite... Um, I, I would say adept at telling the Chinese how they need to reform. And of course, I would agree with most of the gratuitous advice uh, that we give them. Uh, but nonetheless, I think we would be well advised to also look at what the implication of China's rise, and I would say India's rise, you know, almost 40% of the world's intelligent, high savings, hardworking people have come into the global economy in a relatively short a period of time. And I think some of the domains that, you know, the, the ultimate issue is as these countries, China is, and there's a whole long section of the book about China's innovative capability, I think we're likely to underestimate 
the innovative capability of China. And if we do, the issue is going to become, how are we going to move up the value-added chain? How are we going to keep our comparative advantage in the global economy if the Chinese and, for that matter, the Indians are moving up? And this brings you then to look at things like the health and education systems in our society. These are extremely difficult things to deal with. But I, I think the, the ultimate challenge is, is if China's making progress, we have to make progress. And I, my fear is that we're going to sort of go with this aphrodisiac of the, the coercive threat and pay insufficient attention to the, um, uh, what I would call the intellectual and economic challenges. This also goes to the realm of physical infrastructure. Susie and I were with uh, eight congressmen uh, uh, in uh, late March, and one of them was Congressman Oberstar. And he is the chairman of the uh, uh, House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. This may not sound like you know, uh, the sexiest thing that one would hear, but this is a committee that has a lot of budgetary uh, clout, uh, a lot of pork, and uh, so forth. But he, he, was, he was a man for numbers, and he wanted to sort of give it a, 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 a numerical indication of how what China's doing on physical infrastructure compares to what we're doing. And he, he had all sorts of figures on how long it takes a, 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 a container full of soybeans to go from Iowa to China versus how long it takes from Brazil to China, and the U.S. doesn't come out well. But the figure that stuck in my mind was that China has under construction now about 68 subways. The United States, in his recounting, has zero. Uh, I was just in Seattle, and they seem to be building half a subway system there, so I'm not sure uh, how accurate his figures were. But I think, in, in general, if you start looking at infrastructure, uh, uh, the United States needs to make major uh, investments. I think another implication of all of this is We've become, if you talk to people about security in the Pacific, it's not very long until they start talking about the five treaties that the United States has coming out of World War, War II with Japan, with uh, Republic of Korea, Philippines, Thailand, and Australia. Uh, and uh, that's, that's, that's all true enough. But what struck me in talking to people in Asia is not that our alliances are going to fall apart tomorrow. Not, the point isn't that they aren't important. But what is striking when you talk to people in the region is that they increasingly are looking at their problem of how do you balance our interests with America with our interests with China. It's a balancing act. And implicitly, the point is if the Americans don't take account of our interests and ignore our interests in management of the issues, issues like Taiwan and so forth, uh, we're not necessarily going to be with them in the same way that maybe in an early area. I talked to an intelligence uh, analyst in, um, in Australia, and he, what he said struck me. He says, you know, we, we value our alliance, we value our relationship with the United States. We will go up the hill with you Americans, but we're not going to go over a cliff. We're not going over a cliff with you. So it's sort of contingent. We're going to have to, through the intelligence of our policy and the power of our economic uh, incentives and our, and our symbolic power, we're going to have to win support increasingly. And we're also going to have to think about how we can supplement our traditional treaties, I think, with other forms of security uh, organization. I think another uh, 
conclusion that comes out of this is that I think we are going to feel the long arm of Chinese power, not through probably the malevolent use of coercive power. I'm not excluding that. and We can still worry about Taiwan. Uh, but basically, I think it's almost inevitable that we're going to feel the long arm of Chinese power, so to speak, through the unintended spillovers from its domestic, its movement towards higher per capita incomes and the fallout from all of that. Things like China becoming more involved in the global production chain. And then suddenly, as we found out with the heparin case, where suddenly you find out suppliers in little villages with no regulatory control are providing key inputs into an essentially unregulated global pharmaceutical process. Those are the ways I think we're going to feel China's change and involvement uh, in the world. And this suggests to me, and Mike was always looking for a, what's the compelling strategic basis on which we can sort of order U.S.-China relations. And I think one of those strategic compelling rationales increasingly is going to be working with China to limit the global impact of these spillovers from this process of 22% of the world's people changing uh, so uh, rapidly. The last thing, and I'll just leave this because I'm in Silicon Valley, and as, uh, as Andy said, when I grew up here, it was apricot orchards, basically. Uh, Hewlett and Packard were in their garage. I'm dating myself. Uh, uh, I, I would guess there are not too many here, Walter uh, and, and I, uh, probably two of them, uh, when, when Hewlett and Packard were in their garage. But then, in any case, uh, there's a long section of the book that talks about the capacity of China for innovation. And I think, uh, you know, if we think of innovation as invention of whole new technologies that change the world, maybe China's going to be somewhat distant for a considerable period of time. But there are many other forms of innovation, like improving the efficiency of production processes, taking known components and putting them together for new processes in in uh, new products that meet the need of their market. And I think the Chinese are going to be more innovative than many of us uh, anticipate. So with that, those few remarks, I look forward to your questions, uh, your debate, and uh, I'll turn it back to Jiwak. So now we are going to open to the floor for uh, questions and comments. Uh, I got a few things to say. First of, first of all, uh, please identify yourself uh, briefly. And then please make your comments and questions brief. So only one speaker can give a lecture today, so <laughs> don't lecture. And then finally, please wait for a microphone. We are recording uh, this event, so please wait uh, for the microphone. Our staff will be coming to give a microphone. So, uh, Larry Diamond, yes, uh, Hoover and FSI. Yeah. Well, as I told you, Mike, I just got back from Beijing yesterday. I don't travel there nearly as often as you do, but mm -hmm. I was certainly struck by almost everything you said. Mm -hmm. The physical infrastructure all over the country in the interior, the leaping forward in every respect. And I, I strongly agree with all of your conclusions, actually. But there are three things I thought you neglected or soft-pedaled mm -hmm. that strike me as vulnerabilities that uh, I wonder if you could address. 
One, you mentioned the political vulnerability, but it seems to me the problem is not so much that they have an institutionalized succession. Mm -hmm. It seems that they have at least made progress toward that in the literal sense, but they've got no institutionalized capacity for participation. And as people become more educated, more aware, more civically mobilized, there's a civil society mm -hmm. rising up and th there are no channels for it. Mm -hmm. And the other two things that uh, it strikes me as interacting with that are, first of all, the really gross levels of corruption in much mm -hmm. of the country, which I understand President Hu is really trying to rein in now, but again, without the institutionalized capacity because of the lack of independent institutions and the unwillingness to separate party and state. Uh, and the third thing is just the, the breathtaking leap in inequality, which mm -hmm. I've heard some people say is the most rapid increase in the degree of inequality of any country in the world in, in our times. Um, all, all good points. And uh, when I mentioned the, uh, the problem of the Chinese having the courage leaders to get up in the morning, I had in mind a, a much broader agenda. And you've just added uh, three. This, uh, uh, this whole chapter that I have called The Precarious Balance actually frames it as you, you did in terms of the way I put it. It was, I, I, I borrowed heavily from Huntington's book, Political Order and Changing Societies, and I don't know, it was one, page 179 anyway, there's a famous graph with a 45 degree, and it's participation and institution. And if you're going to have uh, uh, development with stability, you've got to be uh, either uh, on that line or below it with sufficient institutions to channel. And if you get too many institutions, you get autocracy, but if you don't have enough, you get chaos. So you want, a, you want balance. And so much of that chapter is organized about what are the institutional problems and what's generating the participation. And, you know, it's like China has the Bunsen burner on, on uh, what you might call pluralization of society, uh, creating a middle class that's going to have demands. So uh, I would say my single biggest worry is the capacity of the Chinese system to stay at or near that 45 degree balance between institutions and participation. And it was really only time that, uh, that so I absolutely share. And that, this is one of the things, when you look at what China's done in the last 30 years, I mean, if you, you were in 1976, come out of the Cultural Revolution, you could have had all the China experts in the world, I think in the Western world, in a room, and nobody would have guessed China was even going to be in the quadrant of reality that is. I mean, even to, you would have had your credentials questioned substantially. So when you look back at the problems the system has overcome, you're hard-pressed to s suddenly say, okay, with all this progress, now I'm pessimistic, right? But when you disaggregate and start looking problem by problem, you say, well, each problem's a huge problem. How could they conceivably, even the attention span, how could they deal with so many? But I, I absolutely agree. On corruption, first of all, I'll defer in the sense that I don't think I know as much as maybe I need to know about that. But my, my sense is, uh, uh, and I sort of think about the early work, and I'd be interested in what Andy would have to say on this topic, and I'd invite him to do so. But I guess I was influenced by, by Scott uh, way, way back when, when he talked about corruption. And, and when systems are in transition and you don't have standard operating procedures and ethical values that are you know, in tumult and so on, and nonetheless you want to produce change in some sense, all change is illegal at some point by, by the previous status quo, right? 
So I guess I think a certain amount of corruption without, you know, I don't want to be misconstrued, uh, is actually essential to, to move from the old situation to the new. My sense in talking to people is, uh, the one level you got large numbers of people in China, you know, you know start with your cab drivers and move on, uh, you know, the first question or response out of their mouth often is corruption. But I have the sense from just talking to international business, and maybe this isn't the relevant, if there, there is corruption, but it's fairly predictable. And it's, it's, a, it's a tolerable percentage of the transactions, so to speak. And so as long as it's predictable and it's tolerable, you can continue to make progress. Now, I don't know what the implications are for legitimacy, but you know, I, I've been reading these Pew polls you know, on uh, different attitudes that people have towards one another and their own society. And the one that struck me, the Pew people in the press, uh, was the optimism scale. And somebody's got to explain to me why the Chinese are the most optimistic people in the world if they're so absolutely turned off by corruption. Now, I, maybe there's an answer, and I, I, I look to all of you to provide it. But I think, the re I think it's too easy just to, to, to look at the corruption and then draw a series of conclusions that, because you know, if corruption was that bad, you, then you've got to begin to explain why has China got more FDI for you know, a long time than the US. And some of this is round-tripping and Chinese investing abroad and reinvesting and all of that. But, but you know, China has inspired a lot of investment. And if, if corruption was the problem that, you know, in a sense, your question suggests, then you have to explain all this other positive development. So I, I, I guess that's sort of where I come out uh, on that. Inequality, I think, is a huge problem. And my, Andy, I think, would be more conversant in all of the figures, but the usual measure is the Gini index, and it's up, at least last I heard, at 0.49. Is that still the number we're dealing with? Which is, you know, by international standards, uh, uh, it's not the worst in the world, but it is, as you say, increased rapidly, and it is alarming. Uh, of course, this is going to feed flow into the cities, and that's part of the urbanization and so forth. Uh, but I think China's leaders, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, uh, have at least identified that as a problem and are at least rhetorically, and I think in some real ways, trying to deal with it. Now, trying to deal with it and having rhetoric isn't to say that, A, they're allocating the resources that will make that you know, possible to ameliorate. Uh, but I think one of the most important things the Chinese are doing to potentially eliminate, or not eliminate, but at least stop inequality from getting worse and hopefully somewhat better is building infrastructure. I mean, whatever you want to say. I mean, if you're going to bring people into the global economy and the, even China's economy, you need roads and, and railroads and so forth. So uh, I'm, a and I, I'm, I'm amenable to the notion that inequality in the early stages of modernization uh, increases. And it seems to me that the Chinese recognize there's a problem and are doing something about it. I have less confidence they will succeed. Uh, what concern do you have that progressively more children will be individual children without aunts and uncles, without nieces and nephews, <laughs> and that the, uh, over time we're going to have a very large number of people who are not seasoned by a family structure? Uh-huh. Well, all these questions, I'm wishing Andy Walder were here. But, so if I really go off the edge here, will you <laughs> rescue me? Uh, 
Well, I'll give you my view on this. As, as I think it's, well, first of all, my understanding would be China is having an internal debate about the one-child policy. Uh, and I think many Chinese would say we've, we've reduced the current population, you know, hundreds of millions below what it would have been had we not engaged in this policy. And I think most of the Chinese I talked to think that result was an important result to get the growth they've had for the last 30 years. So most Chinese that I talk to, and that's mostly urban educated Chinese, so we'll have to leave it to somebody else's speculation what the more rural parts of the population might think. But I think there's some understanding that that population has had some, the policy has had some positive outcomes. There are also the widespread recognition that it's had many undesirable outcomes, and we won't even mention the coercion associated with particularly the earlier stages of that, and in some areas ongoing coercion. But the area that I'm most worried about is the sex imbalance. That is to say, roughly, I've seen various numbers, but 1 to 117, 118, is that a number you recognize? Some, something like that. Uh, you have basically 100 females for every 117 males. Uh, and you say, you know, you were worried about uh, what you were worried about. I'm worried about, you know, 30 million males in search of females who don't exist. I mean, I think this is a, a genuine social problem and leads in a number of directions, most of which are not very uh, desirable. So I think that, that is a problem. Um, so, but I think this points to a larger reality about China, and that is China's leaders don't have any good choices. I mean, they've, every decision they make has big upsides and downsides. Uh, and uh, so, you know, while I have lots of com uh, worries about the one-child policy, and I think that's what the debate is in China now, uh, my guess is they're going to continue with some version of it. I did read an article by, I think it was Wang Feng, uh, some time ago in which he said that he thought the one-child policy in its sort of original form now was a, a, applicable to approximately 60% of the Chinese population, which is to say if that's about right, 40% has managed to be exempt or modified application of the policy. So we may never see a, a total abandonment of the policy for a long time, but we may see its gradual erosion and liberalization. But uh, at the same time, we recognize the, the negative aspects of many Chinese policies. This is only one. Uh, you know, you, you get a little more humility when you say, well, if I was in their position, given the array of problems I have, what would I actually do? And doing nothing is also a decision. When I think of great powers, I think a lot about, oh, so I'm sorry. Uh, Cliff Tan, I'm with the Stanford uh, Center for International Development. Yeah. Um, Could you just speak up a bit? I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, that's better. Uh, my name is Cliff Tan. I'm with the Stanford Center for International Development. Uh, when I think about great powers, I think a lot about ideology. Ideology? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering about the mind part of your book. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think this is original. I mean, I think a lot of Chinese uh, in my generation, maybe a little bit older, basically think China is a society with no values mm -hmm. after the Cultural Revolution. So. What are the values that China could, inc you know, sort of export to the rest of the world yeah. that would be appealing not necessarily to Americans, but even to Asians, to Africans? What, what are those values? Are they being formed? 
if there's no values, how can uh, China, in some sense, become a great power? Yeah. Uh, well, good question, and I, I, I don't want to uh, uh, veer off into a totally methodological discussion, uh, but if we, we look back at the realm of symbolic power that Etzioni talked about, I think we very directly uh, encounter your problem. The capacity to mobilize people by a set of values, uh, cultural values, political values, uh, sort of you know Reagan's articulation of the shining city on the hill and the force of American democratic example. And I, by putting it this way, I don't mean to trivialize it. I think that was a, a major source of great power uh, that the United States have. And unfortunately, I think it's not as strong in some dimensions now as in the past. So I understand exactly what you mean. And I don't want to then say China has none of that, but doesn't have much. But uh, I, my category of the minds is a bigger category. Uh, and I would say a couple of things to take your question directly. I think China isn't without attraction in certain parts of the world, what we might call the Beijing consensus. The idea that you need stability, social stability, a certain authoritarian quality to get economic growth, uh, we don't find that attractive. Uh, we wish, in some sense, as a society, others didn't. Uh, but that, the wish isn't necessarily the reality. And I was quite struck when I was reading, just happened across an editorial in the Star of Lebanon. And it was an editorial saying, you know, the Chinese, what have we accomplished in the last 30 years except war? We haven't had economic growth. We're not admired in the world. We're a problem in the world. What have we accomplished? We have something to learn from China that's produced 30 years of, you know, average 9.5%, 10% growth, done so with tolerable political stability. You know, 1979 conflict with Vietnam, that's pretty much really it. Uh, we have something to learn from China. So I, I don't want to just retreat entirely in the face. But my category is a lot broader than that. And I talk about, you know, what's happening with tourism. China's the fourth largest tourist country, and will, I'm sure within our lifetime be the biggest tourist country in the world. Uh, I look at the quality of China's diplomats and, uh, and leadership training system. I think we make a big mistake if we underestimate the capacity of China's leaders. Let me just give you one example. The current ambassador of the China to the United States, and he's, he's not an exception. Uh, I don't mean to say he's the universal rule, but he is now the ambassador. He's, this is his fifth trip, stay in the United States. He was deputy consul general, I believe, in San Francisco, consul general in LA, and then DCM and one other post in the embassy in Washington, and alternating all those years back to Beijing in between, fifth posting in the United States, regional diversity. The guy studied uh, in England, as I recall, uh, speaks English. He was the interpreter for Deng Xiaoping, uh, among others. Uh, this, this person, when asked, why did you go out to Iowa to look at the election, said, because that's where America's political battles are fought, and I want to understand it. Now that, so this minds category is a lot bigger, uh, and you know, it makes it a kind of residual <laughs> category. I, it may be not quite as methodologically neat as, you, as people would like. But, but I think we, and then I talk about innovation, which I mentioned at the end. 
I think we make a mistake if we just think China's a Confucian society, it's still got plan in its R&D area, still a kind of plan mentality, uh, that China's good at replication but not invention, and we, we create these images in our mind, I think the Chinese are going to be more innovative than we expect. So that's, that's my mind's category. It's a lot bigger than what you said, uh, and, and I did that because I, it was the only place I could put in all this, this domain that I wanted to, but I, it, it was at the expense of a, a rigorous uh, definition there. But, uh, but I wouldn't say China has no um, symbolic power in the world. It tends to be among people we wish they weren't so influential with, perhaps. Uh, Philip Lipsy, political science insurance dean, APARC. Um, uh -huh. I really enjoyed your talk. Um, I have a question about um, popular opinion in China mm -hmm. towards the outside world. You, you know, you mentioned that the leadership of China is primarily concerned about internal rather than external threats, but to some extent it seems to me that one of their strategies for dealing with internal threats has been to direct public anger towards the outside world. Right. And, uh, you know, Ian Johnson was here last week presenting some of his survey research that showed that Chinese attitudes towards the United States and Japan, you know, aren't very high to begin with, but have been gradually deteriorating in recent years. And if you look at the Tibetan protests or controversies over Chinese uh, exports and safety, you know, if you look at the Chinese side, there's a fairly vigorous reaction that, you know, seems to me re reveals a pretty wide gulf between attitudes towards these issues in the West and um, outside of China and the attitudes um, among the Chinese population. So I was wondering if you could comment on yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, this, this, this whole chapter dealing with the precarious balance also deals with nationalism, which is one way this problem is, is characterized. I guess I'd say, first of all, I think China has a real problem. And I, I remember uh, interviewing in Indonesia and it was somebody in a strategic studies institute in, in Indonesia who says, you know, and I asked him what the military thought of China, the Indonesian military. And the answer was, our military isn't worried about China being communist. Not the worry. The worry is China's nationalistic. And, and I went to Vietnam, and one person expressed, I wish we could move our country some way where out of China's reach, but we can't. Uh, and then nationalism as one worry in the Sino-Vietnamese relationship. So, and we've seen anti-Japanese riots in 2005 and, and so forth. Uh, so I'm, I would certainly not say mean, uh, and I think it is an important problem China has to deal with. I also note, though, that it seems to me this can get turned around rather rapidly, at least as a uh, current political problem. I've been struck by, with the earthquake, the first two they allowed in were the Japanese and the Taiwan uh, earthquake, for good reasons. They have experience with earthquakes and, and read characters and, and at least uh, are a little more able to negotiate the, uh, the cultural terrain in a hurry. But uh, by all accounts, the Chinese have reacted well to the both Taiwan and uh, Japan uh, people. So I guess I would say big problem, but it does seem to be it's a multi dimensional thing that doesn't just operate in one way and can uh, turn, turn around. Uh, secondly, it's interesting you mentioned Ian Johnston, and I don't know what, what he said and so on, but I have great admiration for his work and I do know what he has broadly said in, uh, in print. And he had a very interesting article on uh, survey, as I recall, in Beijing 
and what were the nascent uh, foreign policy relevant opinions of the emerging middle class. And I don't want to attribute a view, I'll just attribute my conclusion of what I interpreted him to say is that his surveys led him to not be certain, but to be hopeful slash somewhat optimistic that as China's middle class grew, it would become more moderate or uh, willing to be integrated and play by the rules of the game and so on. In other words, the middle class had, the growth of a middle class had moderate, potentially, moderating effects. Uh, and uh, that's certainly a conclusion I would like to believe because that holds out the prospect for better relations with the world and maybe over time less problems. Uh, so I guess I would say it's a problem, but I'm hopeful this might one of those problems that the growth of the middle class might not entirely do away with, but make more uh, moderate. Uh, I don't know if that's responsive. But. Wallace Shorenstein. Um, the ultimate power is economic power. And we have a cliche in our business never borrow money that you can't pay back. Right. And, and we're <laughs> in a situation where we are. You should be our, our Secretary of the Treasury. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think I should be. I'll do a better job. Yeah. But uh, how do you look at the end result of the situation of our borrowing and compound interest and our inability to service our debt? Yeah. There, um, well, uh, let me first of all start with my sort of most bottom line conclusion. Uh, as, as a total matter of U.S. fiscal and monetary policy, I'm worried about it. Uh, in the direct case, and a whole part of the book uh, talks about China as a buyer. And I think frequently Americans pay a lot of attention to China as a seller. Everything's made in China, all of that. Uh, I, I don't mean it, it's a non-problem, but I'm, I'm, I, I, I think pow the power of China is seen increasingly through its role as a buyer. And one of those things is the buyer of American debt. It goes into a, long, whole, a whole long discussion on that. As of January of this year, China held, according to the U.S. Treasury, if we look at Treasury notes and agency debt, what, uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae uh, be two of the big uh, chunks of that. Uh, held 932 or 34, I can't remember, billion dollars in U.S. Uh, dollar-denominated U.S. Treasury and agency debt. Uh, I had had breakfast uh, a couple of years ago, actually, with the finance minister, and I asked him how much debt, uh, American debt, China had, and I used a number. At that time, it was 70 billion. So we've gone from 70 billion to 932 in a rather uh, rapid uh, amount of time. But in any case, he says, yes, we have federal debt, the agency and treasury debt, but we also have state debt, we have corporate paper, uh, and so forth. So I, I think, and he basically was saying, I'm not sure exactly how much dollar denominated debt in its entire we, entirety we have. But you asked me, so I think basically what we're doing is passing on a lot of IOUs to our, you know, to our, our kids and to... Right, you got to pay it back and we're passing it to future generations. So it, as a general rule, I'm uh, opposed to this. In the case of the U.S.-China relationship, though, I think it has one positive upside. And that is that through force of circumstance, we've ended up in some sense to be two 
economic scorpions in a bottle. I mean, in a sense, they've loaned us, but if they begin to sell that off rapidly, the dollar falls, the value of their remaining debt instruments goes down, they suffer a huge foreign exchange loss, and so forth. Uh, so uh, they want to be careful. When I met with the uh, mayor of Shanghai a couple of years ago, he says, you know, I don't understand you Americans. You seem to think we, we don't want you to have a, we would like to keep you weaker, or have you weaker, because it takes the pressure off us. He says, au contraire. You're our big, Shanghai exports, what, 60% of its exports go to you. We want you to be healthy. I think what this, this has done is inadvertently created an interdependence that moderates. I mean, how long has the United States been talking about the overvalued renminbi and done virtually nothing? And you ask yourself, why is that? Because in fact, the levers, we, we can't be too coercive on China. Conversely, China can't act too irresponsibly where it's going to create problems in the, in the US debt market and as we see the global market. So uh, while I'm worried about our, what you might call national spendthrift <laughs> characteristic, uh, in the sense that it's promoting an interdependence here that stabilizes the relationship, I do see that, in a limited sense, as a positive. Yeah. Hello, I'm Steve Lee from the Naval Postgraduate School. I'm a student oh. there. Uh, oh. I was just wondering, one of the facets of your, uh, of your uh, Chinese power is might, and uh, one of the things that comes to my mind, obviously being in the military, is uh, military military capability, uh -huh. and one of the tenets of uh, military capability that China has been growing is uh, their diplomatic, uh, military diplomacy all uh -huh. over the world, whether it be in Africa, Latin America, or right. South America. And I was just wondering what, uh, if you can comment on some of the possible implications it has for the United States and uh, our efforts for uh, military diplomacy around the world. Well, a good, good question, and uh, I guess that gets right to the very, uh, uh, the, the beginning where I was talking about what the Chinese learned from the Soviets and their collapse. And that is, uh, uh, there's a whole long part of the book and it also talks about space, increasing space capabilities. I was with a couple congressmen in August. We went to China's space city. I hadn't realized China had a space city in Beijing. And maybe I was the only one I didn't know, but boy, they, they drove it to us. It was the astronaut training center. Uh, satellites and so on. So China's moving ahead in space and they sh shot down that satellite in, uh, what was it, January of 2007, I guess it was, 2007. Uh, so they're, they're moving ahead in naval, air force, space, um, cyber areas and so on. So they're making progress. But this gets to the Soviet Union. I think they concluded that the Soviet Union made an enormous mistake by building up its military power, threatening others, but having no policy really of reassuring. And I think what the, the core policy is, and it gets to your military diplomacy, increasing number of exchanges between the PLA and the US, uh, and uh, between with India, with Pakistan, with Britain, with France, with the Central Asian countries, uh, with Russia, uh, China has gone since about 2002 on a binge of what you might call military, using the military as an instrument of diplomacy. And I think, and, and it gets to the point now where China is the number one supplier of peacekeeping troops under the umbrella of the United Nations among the uh, permanent five of the Security Council. And I, in my, uh, I have some pictures. One of the pictures is 
Chinese troops and a personnel carrier with blue helmets, UN helmets, in Haiti. In Haiti. Uh, when the tsunami happened in Southeast Asia, was that 2002, three? What year was it? Four, four. Uh, the military uh, sent a few people, military uniformed people, to the tsunami stricken areas. It was China's first venture, really, with troops into Southeast Asia. Uh, well, they've been in Cambodia, and there have been a few limited uh, things, but sort of a humanitarian uh, nature. So I think the what the Chinese are trying to do is they're committed to acquiring this coercive capability. I mean, I wish I could stand here and tell you the Chinese aren't. But my observation is they are. And so you would deal with it. But on the other hand, I think they are doing what they can to try to reassure the rest of the world that as they acquire that capability, they will not, in general at least, uh, be threatening. Uh, and I think that's where this military diplomacy comes in. So that's what I mean, is I think China is dedicated to this balanced portfolio of power. You didn't hear me say they're only going to do economics and ideas, you know, ignore the military. But I think it's balance and it's, it's seeing the interplay between different forms of power. And I think you come away looking at the last 30 years, this is a sophisticated policy. I mean, broadly speaking, we're talking about 22% the world, or 20% of the world's people. It is, it's, it's pretty crude at some levels. But, but they see the big, the big picture. I don't know, is that respondent? Yeah, do you think uh, challenge U.S. military diplomacy efforts around the world? Well, give me a case of what you're worried about, uh, or what you might think. I see the central contradiction to be in the Taiwan area. Uh, and even that, now with the election in Taiwan, that's a whole other discussion, its implications. But I guess I would just say is I think that is one of the few strategic problems of the U.S. That, that at least seems to be moving possibly in a positive direction from the point of view of our interests. And I think actually the Taiwan interests well. But uh, so... Uh, I'm not too worried. I think the, the undergirding principle of Chinese foreign policy is basically make as few enemies as possible, point one, and by all means, the United States. Try your best to get along with them because they are the ones that, you know, between the market they provide, the security guarantees they provide, uh, their role of uh, you know, sort of uh, balancer in the global system. It's most important we get along with the U.S. So I don't think they're looking for any problems. And a good example would be in Latin America. They went in and were talking to Chavez and still, in fact, are. They, in fact, I even have a picture of Hu Jintao with Fidel Castro. But at the same time they're doing that, they're paying a lot of attention about Americans' you know, sensitivity to their operations in Latin America. So. I guess if your worry is, are they going to be looking for problems with us, whether it's in Africa or not, I, th I think they're not going to be looking. That won't, doesn't mean they won't stumble into it. Uh, and, and Sudan might be one area just to, that's happened. But, you know, China's now got a special emissary to the Sudan. They've been trying to get Bashir to, you know, uh, begin to invite in the African Union and UN troops and so on. So. I just don't have an image of China as on the prowl for problems. That's just, you know, it doesn't mean they won't 
stumble into it or occasionally create it, but that's not the point. That's not the purpose. I agree with you very, very much of what you said. I think China needed to um, be militarily um, build up certain military capacity because it's very recent memory of Japan, Japanese invasion and the humiliation that China had suffered because she was weak. And so str strength and wealth has been a national purpose right. since the 1840s. <laughs> and uh, in any case, I think, you see, in the Western papers, one reads quite a lot of criticism, you know, about China, um, the human rights, and all kinds of things. But when one reads the Chinese newspapers, there's very little criticism about West. About, about the West. And it's mostly friendly, actually. When I read the, um, the People's Daily, uh, the overseas edition, and they have these stories, human stories, of uh, features of Westerners who have made friends with the Chinese, or married Chinese, or, you know, lots of this kind of a heartwarming, uh, feel-good stories. And I haven't seen much criticism against the United States about uh, Iraq either. Mm. So, so I think they are trying to keep a low profile, profile, and they don't want to stimulate any kind of animosity from their economic powers in the West, which is U.S., the primary, the most important, and EU. Um. I guess uh, I agree with the spirit of what you said, but maybe not all of the details. And in, what I mean is that I think the tone of the, what you might call the mass media in China is, as you suggest, generally downplaying, um, at least uh, not gratuitously trying to uh, inject discord into U.S.-China relations. However, if you look at the next level of media, scholarly journals, the journals of the Chinese military, uh, strategic think tanks, they are very open and clear about what it is they object to in U.S. policy uh, on a global basis. So I would say the Chinese have a, an, uh, a much more um, nuanced view and uh, a much more critical view. And uh, just before the election of 2004, our general election in 2004, these two worlds accidentally met in China. The uh, leading foreign policy uh, spokesman, in a sense, a man named Chen Shi-chen, sort of broadly saying, sort of the nearest China had to a Zhou Enlai after Zhou Enlai, uh, had given a speech, I forget if it was at Beida or Tsinghua, that was criticizing U.S. policy. And he, I, I, he had at least 10 points. Uh, and, a, and, and, and in fact, I, I met no Chinese that actually disagreed with any of his points. Apparently, by some accident, uh, that speech got published around the world by China Daily right before our election and it seemed to be, I mean it was so critical of the current, the then current administration's policy that it looked like the Chinese were coming out for in effect the opposition party. Uh, and then there was a lot of embarrassment. It was clear that this had been a slip up that these two zones met. So I would say the Chinese are very um, very conversant with what they don't like in our policy, and also very conversant where they think our, our weaknesses are. Uh, but when all is said and done, the Chinese believe we are likely to be, and I have a beautiful chart in there, they've done a study of comprehensive power in the world. The U.S. has stayed constant at about 
it gets to be a little crude, a quarter of the world's power. And you know, with all our problems, what the Chinese say is, boy, the Americans, you know, they're the Timex watch. They take a licking and they keep on ticking. And it just goes like this. Other countries are falling and China's risen dramatically. Uh, but they have concluded that the US is going to be the single most important country, not only to them, but in the world for a long time. And we got to get along with them. But we shouldn't confuse that realist assessment with, with softness. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure we can go on, but uh, I hate to do, but uh, we have to wrap up uh, this program. Uh, you, should, you should come back to take oh. more questions uh, in your future. But thanks again well, thank for you. highly stimulating. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.